Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash GabFest. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. And by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 30th, 2015, the Jeb with a sad, droopy exclamation point edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here with John Dickerson of Slate and Face the Nation. On my right, John and I are in Washington, D.C. We had a New York date yesterday. It was really exciting. We saw Hamilton, which will be the subject of a future Gab Fest episode. It was a great, it was a really nice date. It was a great date. It was like the best date I've had uh, in a long time outside uh, of whatever I do with my wife and family. We had Middle Eastern food, walked in the rain, saw Hamilton. Not on our date. She would have been a third wheel is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, but she is here in in New Haven, I guess. Hello, Emily. That is where I am. Are you wearing your um, Friday Night Lights coach shirt, David? Yes. I am. Re-inspired by Hamilton. His idea of creating a Friday Night Lights (laughs) musical has been kindled afresh. I wonder if that's what you, because you mentioned that to me yesterday, and I wonder if that's why I wore it today. I didn't think about it consciously. (laughs) On this week's GabFest, the third Republican presidential debate, hello, President Rubio, goodbye, President Bush. Then should America be celebrating the new budget deal that John Boehner pushed through as his last act as House Speaker? And then another disturbing incident between a white cop and a black citizen filmed what to make of the Spring Valley High incident. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and Slate Plus, should Chris Christie be ashamed of his quiet car violation this week? If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfestplus. And by the way, we have a live super fest coming up. Thank you for the sound effect, John. I appreciate that. At the super fest, we'll be there with the culture fest guys and gals, or the gals and guy, and uh, hang up and listen. And Dan Coyce is going to be hosting it, and there'll be special guests. It's at uh, November 16th in uh, Manhattan, at Town Hall in New York. Come on. It's going to be a great show. And I, I just learned today there are going to be if you go, they're gonna, we're going to be raffling off special baskets, GabFest baskets filled with goodies where we've all picked favorite things of ours. Like I picked Billy Lynn's 
halftime walk. And Emily picked something. Oh, is Emily, that what that email was? That's what that email uh, was. <laughs> you have to pick some stuff. And then there were some of the things that John were picked will for me I hadn't actually picked. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. No, I'll pick some stuff. Town Hall is really pretty. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's for real. That's not a kid in a round space. So get tickets at slate.com slash superfestnyc. Although, pure, 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 there you. will verily be some kidding around. Slate.com slash superfestnyc. Okay. There was another Republican debate on Wednesday night, a lineup of 10. I was on the train during the debate, so I only saw highlights. And then I, I followed it on Twitter, which is actually fun. I watched the debate on Twitter, so I saw it all unfold on Twitter. So I'm going to have to – I'm going to use this as a chance to interrogate you guys about what it was like in the room, as it were. So, John, as I understand it, this was the final swan song of the Bush family in American politics. What, was it really that bad a night for Jeb Bush? What, in what way was it a bad night for Jeb Bush if it was? I think it was a bad night for him because it was the third performance in a row in which he was basically translucent, where he wasn't a presence when he talked. There was nothing forceful or commanding about what he said. He seemed just ill at ease with the moment and the place. And in the previous two debates, he was overshadowed by the Donald Trump show. But this debate, and we can talk about this more when we talk about Marco Rubio, there really wasn't a Donald Trump show. And so there was a moment there he could have grabbed and sort of asserted himself as a candidate who believes in certain things and, and believes in them strongly enough that he can articulate them forcefully or so cogently and intelligently that people take notice. Um, this was There was added drama and added reason for him to do well because he's been getting grief from the people raising money for him because his campaign is in as one person quoted in the Washington Post called it a, a death spiral, low in the polls, not really showing a way to get back on his feet and being surpassed by other candidates who uh, Marco Rubio being the most notable. And so he had to do something. So he, he had a moment he had to fulfill and then he didn't fulfill it. So it was kind of a double whammy for him. And it was so painful because the first question was a terrible question. What's your weakness? Nobody answered the question. They all just except Bush. ducked around it, except for Bush. <laughs> he said, I should be more patient. And then he said, I'm not good at faking anger. And then he faked anger. He pretended to take umbrage over Marco Rubio's missing lots of um, days in the Senate. And Rubio, in the most, like, shifty, I mean, man, if that guy becomes president, he is going to lie to us. He just turned it on Bush. And it was brilliant, but sinister, by essentially saying, you're only giving me, you, you know, talk about how you're the next John McCain and your great comeback. He missed a ton of days in the Senate. You don't really care about this. You're just pretending to because someone told you to attack me. Which was and totally it, that true. That part of it rang true. Mm -hmm. It got Rubio completely off the hook for his own Senate record. And Bush just, he fades in these moments with this painful half grin on his face. I mean, my kids were watching and they just were cringing for him. Did, what is the, so John, what's the theory of the case that allows him to come back and then what's the let, let's say he can't what's the way he get, how does he exit the race i mean is there any chance he's like gone before they even vote i well you don't know i mean he's, he's so he, much money he's come out thursday and uh, scoffing at the idea that he should turn his exclamation point into a period and be done with it but the problem is once the once the rot sets in how do you fix it? How do you get on the other side of it? And and the only way you can do it is have a big moment, grab a moment somewhere. It, it's easier to do in a debate because everybody's watching. There's some kind of false drama or you can create drama. As Emily said, he tried to do it last night. That insight, though, is great, though, that he 
said he was bad at faking anger and then literally in the next um, exchange had to do that. Um, I don't know how you recoup from this. I really don't. I mean, the other way is if everybody falls, but there are too many candidates to fall and there are other people rising, Rubio, Kasich, Christie, who have all been more effective on the campaign trail. And so all Bush has is money, but none of the other stuff. I just find it very hard. So then the question is, yeah, how would you engineer an exit? I mean, if it looks like you're just dribbling along for several months, that seems no good. Uh, Can we just take a moment to feel sorry for him in the context of the Bush dynasty? He's going to be the guy who not only isn't elected president, but couldn't even like win a primary. It's just so I just I mean, what? A, it's just sad. Well, yeah. I mean, not only not only that, he's not he's now both in the early states and nationally in like fifth, sixth. I mean, he's in the he's in the humiliating. Yeah. Right. So, Emily, is that a position where he should just he should just fold up right now? I mean, he has money. Should he is it is it really a, a marathon, not a sprint? And he should just stick with it and he'll, he may get lucky and he may turn around. What about or, taking or should he just all say, like, money? oh, I hate doing this. Well, this that's is terrible. Thing. Why don't I just right. go back? Well, yeah, if you're running, if you're Rand Paul, you're running because you're you have a message and a passion and a, and, you know, the 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 tree of liberty is watered with the blood of patriots. And so you can go still go out and slaughter patriots and, and water the tree. I mean, you can you can get it. You <laughs> I know. don't think that's how it works. No. I don't think you slaughter the, the patriots are slaughtered by other people. Yeah. I don't think Rand Paul. <laughs> I know. Just, I know. I just got, stop the metaphor. Or is your idea that he's so laying much, himself? Was, he's like dribbling his so own blood fun. into the tree of liberty? I know. I realized also, once I, I was... Wouldn't, uh, that, wouldn't that kill the tree with like <laughs> all that blood? Isn't it salty? <laughs> once I got rolling down the hill, I couldn't I couldn't lay the bike down. I had to just keep pedaling. <laughs> um, anyway... Uh, so anyway, uh, life is. He like, has a cause. That's so your anyway, point. he has a cause. Jeb Bush doesn't, other than himself. I mean, he I'm, he believes in things, obviously, but it's but it seems clear from his campaign and the way he engages in it that that he's not a happy warrior for a set of ideas. And Didn't so he promise he wasn't going to do this unless he felt joy? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's been a <sighs> and like the, he does not but, convey. But, okay, joy. but so how does he? If Jeb Bush dropped out right now, even with money in the bank. Do you think everyone would still appreciate that and recognize this was the right decision? Or do you think he feels like he's got to take it further? Oh, I think people would recognize, like, just not your moment. You know, Donald Trump shook everything up and... Right, you just blame Donald Trump. But and, then he, but then he would have to admit that Donald Trump defeated him. How right. humiliating is that? He's not going to have well, much choice about you can, that. You can could, say it's John, could he, take, could he take all his money and put it into South Carolina or something? I mean, I suppose, but you still need to have a... The voters still have to pick you? The voters have to pick you. You have to have a rationale. You have to, um, you know, adequately and successfully execute some portion of the campaign. And so far, he's he's done the money-raising part. Um, I don't know. Also, you put all your money in and somebody comes out of New Hampshire and Iowa, some group of candidates come out of New Hampshire and Iowa with a kind of energy that you don't have you know you're just kind of standing there and hoping you can join the race i don't i don't think given all of the problems he's had that 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 works so one of the interesting things about last night's debate is that donald trump and ben carson who lead in the polls were not really central figures although they were literally the central figures in the in it emily has the fever broken on those guys or is it just that the debates are not actually that important for the two of them and they could they could still continue to lead the polls and, and drive the campaign even though they're not that important to the debates themselves? 
I don't think they're suddenly going to have a huge dip in the polls, but I felt watching them that their performance was repetitive. I mean, literally, Trump was saying the exact same lines over and over again. And Carson, I don't think it matters so much what he says. It's his sort of soporific uh, style that is what he's bringing to the table, right? You sort of suddenly you feel like, I guess you feel like the doctor's in the house. It's very calming to listen to him. I mean, he's saying nonsense, but his manner is so different from everyone else's that it's so soothing. And yet with each of them, I didn't feel like there was a single new move or thought being made. At the same time, I don't think they just suddenly burn out, uh, like I was saying. So I'm not exactly sure. Is there, I mean, maybe what we see is that they are slowly going to come down in the polls as the voters get more serious. I don't think, I think they'll, if it's true that there are two different lanes, right. this is another metaphor where you'd think I'd have this metaphor worked out by now. Anyway. And yet. And yet it has Go wreck it for us. It's more yes. fun when you mangle it. Yeah, exactly. Um, if we could just get some patriots the and bloody, some trees. Are there going to be bloody patriots yes. that are going to be hit by We're cars? They and, could be yeah. fall on their bikes. <clears throat> so anyway, there, so imagine there are two lanes and you've got some con- to- concussed patriots running. <laughs> no. um, all right. So you have two lanes. You have Cruz. Trump and and um, Ben Carson in one competing for the grassroots. We're not going to take it anymore. The Washington establishment has sold us out. Vote. And then you have the other lane, which is, you know, everybody else, basically. Fiorina kind of goes in both lanes and, and Rubio does, too. Carson. Rubio does not go in the other lane. Not really. Which lane? He's conservative the, the enough. Carson Trump lane? Yeah. yeah. Oh, remember when he first came to Washington, he was he was known as the senator from the Tea Party. Yeah, no, he... Oh, now, right, I there guess issues, There are issues because of immigration and, and other things. So he is not. That's why I'm saying he does... He can play in both, whereas Jeb Bush cannot play in the other, and neither can Chris Christie, and neither can, can Kasich. So anyway, my, I guess my point is, Trump and Carson can do their thing and have their fight. And then the second stage of that can be they both fall... And Cruz rises, which I feel like is just that's, that's the story. That's coming. So then you have in the next lane, before these two lanes cross or engage or whatever merge. they do, merge, you then have to figure out how the Rubio, Bush, Kasich, Christie thing sorts itself out. And I think, you know, right now Rubio looks like he's in good shape in that lane. But I think Chris Christie, you know, Chris Christie's no Jeb uh, Bush. You know, Bush sort of took a shot at Rubio and then quailed. Yeah, I've been using that word so much on this show, but he sort of shrunk after he took the... I don't think Chris Christie would, would let that happen. So ine- inevitably that conflict will come and that will be uh, one to be watching. Let's say it comes down to Cruz Rubio, which uh, if you were a betting... If I were betting, that's the, those were the two I would bet would, would lead right now. And I think Rubio has the has the inside lane, has the whatever lane it is. That yeah, is going, cl- he's is got the inside lane of the lane. Of the lane to win the nomination. Is there any chance, Emily, in a Cruz-Rubio showdown that, that in fact Cruz, who is, you know, is the candidate I certainly most want to punch in the face, that he beats Rubio? I don't see it. He just seems so strange to me, such a particular creature of a small, rather fringe set of ideological views that I just I just feel like if I was a Republican at that voter at that moment, I would rush into Marco Rubio's arms. 
But John, no, I really do think he's going to lie with the most sincere Wait. possible expression on his face. Can I just? Did you catch the exchange at the end over his finances, where he just wouldn't answer the question and and made it seem like an insult that he'd even been asked it? I mean, they all played that card last night, but that was the moment where I was like, "Wow, he is going to stare into that TV monitor when he is president and tell us that like the bomb has not just been dropped on Paris when actually it has, or something." Are the Patriots now bombed? Bombing Paris. Yes. yes. We're going to water the trees. As all good patriots should, the David. Yeah. With, with the blood of um, Did you catch Bush's made a little dig at the French work week? In the they work of his th- the French anger. work 39.6 hours a week, I discovered today. Well, More than the Germans, who work 39.2 hours a week. Goodness, you really had that at your fingertips. Uh, yeah, what man. were you about to say, John? <laughs> no, I, I, I thought that was uh, when Emily was rushing into Marco Rubio's arms. I, it reminded me of a previous show in which I thought she expressed a similar sentiment. But uh, I don't know how this will, I don't know how the, the two will, will, will merge. But what I guess what I wonder is how much longer in addition to what happens with Bush, what happens with all these other candidates too? Like the undercard debates, do they need to still happen? You know, there was a debate with um, Bobby Jindal and Senator Graham uh, and George Pataki and Rick Santorum. You know, these like I just they're not even registering in the polls. So I don't see why the that, that conversation still continues. But um, anyway. And yet. And yet. Well, well it continues because they still are declared presidential candidates and people are still, you know, enough people in when polled will say, yes, I would like Lindsey Graham to be president for him to make the JV debate. And enough people in the varsity debate say, I want Carly Fiorina to be president. But some of the we've already seen Perry and Walker give it up because they were just forget it. They, you know, they had, ran out of money or in Walker's case, ran out of reasonable path, yes. he thought, to the, the nomination, even though he still had some money. What What is it that gets the rest of him out? Trump, I think, could get bored. Trump may just decide, I'm bored with this. I've proven my point and get out. I Well, but, it's, it's interesting because in his reaction to Ben Carson, which has been double, you know, we thought he was going to go after him, which he had done at first, raising questions about his religion, saying he was using his pack illegally, saying he wasn't really pro- uh, life, saying that he was weak, had low en- lower energy than Jeb Bush, saying he couldn't create jobs. I mean, he really went down the list. And and now Ben Carson's well, his best friend. Well, I don't know about well, that. Well, he had a moment last night of being like, and thank you, Ben, when he was declaring that the reason we can trust him to lead the free world was he convinced CNBC to shorten the debate to two hours. Yeah, that was a funny moment. But, but I mean... So he's been nice to him, but then also attacked him. And what was different about it is usually Trump counterpunches. In the case of Carson, it was he, he didn't. He just was unprovoked. I guess the point is what I saw in his unprovoked attacks of Carson was an actual desire to fight this out, to keep like he isn't going to get bored because he wants to he doesn't want to lose to be like the loser. It's hard. To but he needs an exit strategy, too, doesn't he? The, something that allows him to maintain his grandiose sense of self and maybe mm. it involves not even letting the voters have a crack at him right yeah. that's what i was yeah. thinking that, that exactly once you once you allow the votes to come in you you can really be humiliated whereas if you just declare victory if you say i've changed the terms of the debate i've you know got everyone talking about immigration i drove out the the liberal jeb bush boom what, what? yeah no i it just doesn't seem like that is his it seems like he's really locked in he really, I mean, uh, but, you know, I've been totally wrong about his exit ramp will lead debate. right to the steps of the White House. Um, last question to you, John, is wh- why is it that Rubio, who is winning the media primary, certainly, why is it that he is not 
yet showing it in the polls. He's inched up a bit, but he's definitely not jumped up. Yeah, I think I think it's because he's not he's a politician and this is not what you want to be in this season. And so the energy and passion of the party is going towards the non non Washington politicians. But if it's true, as has been true in previous Republican races, that the party kind of comes to its senses, for lack of a better term, and picks candidates, you know, dispenses with the Herman Cain's and the Michelle Bachmans and starts to move towards a more electable general election candidate, uh, then Rubio starts to become more a part of that conversation. Right now, he's a part of the conversation in the non-Trump Carson wing, and that's smaller and more split up, you know, so it's just basically vote splitting in that lane that he's in at the moment. Lanes. Let's hear from our first sponsor. GabFest is sponsored this week by The Rachel Maddow Show. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work. But even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch are directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. Last week, some naive people like me were wondering why there wasn't more panic in the air about the possibility of a government shutdown and a government default. This week, we learned why. Even as the Hell No Caucus was grilling Paul Ryan and insisting they would never go along with another bipartisan budget deal, the usual suspects, that is, the White House, Nancy Pelosi... Harry Reid, John Boehner, Mitch McConnell, were hammering out another budget and debt ceiling deal to just push the ball a little bit further down. John Boehner's last act as Speaker of the House was to work out a deal that essentially gave President Obama most of what he was asking for in terms of budget and debt ceiling, $80 billion in new spending on domestic and defense, busting the, the uh, sequester caps. The debt ceiling raised until 2017, no really major cuts to Medicare or Social Security. There's a lot in it. It's a huge amount of chicanery, which we can talk about in this deal. So, Emily, everything just got pushed past uh, twenty pushed past the presidential and congressional election to 2017. Is this a good deal for America? I mean, good enough. I, it's so hard to tell. It seems like we shouldn't have to have cause to celebrate, just that we get to pay the government's bills through 2017, but I'm so tired of these showdowns. Just the idea that we're not going to have another one is satisfying enough to me. And the fact that they lifted the sequester for to some degree and are allowing for some raises in spending, I'm sure you're right about the chicanery and you should tell us about it, but I just mostly breathed a sigh of relief. Also, I mean, the whole thing is like, it's it's hard to pay attention to. It's sleep-inducing to read about the details of John, this. John, was this always in the works? Was this thing? Was this deal just always going to happen and just dumb people like me mm -hmm. thought actually we were going to have a showdown? Yeah, well, it was in the works ever since um, Boehner announced that he was leaving and he said he wanted to clean out the barn. But then there seemed to be no evidence that the barn was going to get cleaned out. And by clean out the barn, he meant take care of those issues, the debt ceiling, the continuous funding of the government. That, XM Bank. XM Bank that were kind of – that are highly political that caused the kind of heartache that ended up pushing him out of the job and that would cause a new speaker to burn all kinds of political capital in just keeping the place going and keeping the trains on time. What Boehner did to get this passed was get 79 votes I believe from his conference. It's a conference of 247. 
Uh, and and so in doing that, he broke the so-called Hastert rule, which uh, they may or may not still keep calling it that after uh, Denny Hastert's pleading, having pled and been sentenced, right? No, he hasn't been sentenced. He pled guilty. No, he just pled guilty. Um, anyway, the Hastert rule, which said nothing can pass without a majority of Republicans. Boehner has broken that many times and broke it again here. But a new speaker, if Speaker Ryan were to do that, it would create instant inflammation. And that inflammation, as we've seen with Boehner and with Newt Gingrich, does not recede. Or if it does recede, it recedes a little bit. But it's once you start that inflammation going, you can't get it to go all the way back down, no matter how many patriots you kill. And anyway, so I guess my point is, David, he I knew he wanted to do that, but I didn't know they were this far along. And uh, it just shows you what could get done if... The speaker decided basically, you know, I'm only going to get as many Republicans as I get and I'm going to have to pass this with Democrats. The reason that's not sustainable is that you end up not being able to do Republican things because you always need Democratic votes and you have to give away. I mean, that would be also be known as compromise, but uh, that's not what the why Republican- did Why did the Republican conference go along relatively Gently, I mean, there wasn't a, just a, there wasn't a lot of mishigas about this. Well, I mean, there was they there are a I mean, lot of people that hate it. They fired Boehner. Yeah, I was going to say right. They fired Boehner and got rid of McCarthy. Um, and also, only seventy nine voted for it, so that's a lot that didn't. Um, now, in a sense, it was also a free vote. You know, it was going to pass, and so you could you could vote against it and and still know it was going to go forward. So it seems to me that this deal is actually just fantastic for the GOP in the sense that it pushes. It pushes the really embarrassing, the things that tend to make them look bad well past the election. They don't need to they don't need to shut down the government and do the debt ceiling, which are crazy, risky, extremely damaging. It allows them now to pick their fights for the next year about what they want to deal with in Congress. Am I wrong to think that? But Emily? don't the rest of us get the debt ceiling being raised and the budget yeah, and so the government wait, staying yes. open? So in the sense that in the sense that for the country they didn't hold it hostage and blow it up, like we all get a victory. But in terms of politics, if you think of this as a political decision by the... So the GOP just decided not to shoot a lot of hostages. That was nice of them. But that doesn't... They just didn't cause a negative outcome. But they then created a lot of political space for them to to make mischief for the next year without actually having to pay a lot of price. And what's the mischief they make? Over particular items in the budget or just other I don't know. I I was curious what you think. I mean, John, what do you think? What is it that that Congress will do for the next year to cause mischief and benefit themselves in the the campaign? Or maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just do nothing. They may pass a lot of – you could imagine passing symbolic stuff that would never get through the Senate and then – or, or you, yeah, that would never get to the president's desk or passing symbolic stuff that would get to the president's desk and then he would, he would veto it. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think you, um, I think they still have transportation to do. So that's some actual business that needs to get done. And, uh, well, I mean, with a Democratic what, president, there's not what much is they can do. Speaker Ryan going to do for the next year? Well, I think what he's going to, I mean, they always knew they were going to be somewhat held in abeyance because of the, the election and the campaign. So, I think they'll do a lot of symbolic stuff. I think he will work to try to get his house in order. Um, And then, of course, he'll have to figure out, I mean, the problem is getting your house in order is then there's going to be a whole new balance of power once there's the election in 2016. He'll know how how big his majority is, what, what its shape is. So I think he's got a lot of time to kind of prepare before he has to actually do the business of the house again. Emily, do you think that if, if we have a Democratic president in 2017 and... Republicans will definitely still have the House. The Senate will be close, but probably the Republicans will have it or it'll, it'll just be very close. 
are we just going to go through the same stupid crap that we've been through for the beginning of the Hillary Clinton administration or throughout the Hillary Clinton administration that we've gone through uh, with Boehner? Or or are are these showdowns now, is is Ryan actually going to, you know, shut the government down and default? Or is, is... is there any chance the cycle breaks if we continue to have a Democratic president and a Republican House? Well, the argument for it breaking is that the Republicans will realize that they're much better off without doing it and that Ryan somehow will be a transformative speaker. Because you're right, the composition of the or House is say, unlikely. Magic. Right. So I would say no, the fever's not going to break because the incentives for the Freedom Caucus are not going to change. I can't imagine they won't all or most of them get reelected. In fact, it seems possible their numbers would grow. And it seems likely that they'll take a break and then kind of come back to this with renewed energy. And whatever honeymoon period Paul Ryan has a speaker will be over. Maybe he'll figure out a way to um, leave the job behind by then and do something else so he won't have to be there for the ugly part that could leave him politically scarred. But it seems to me like the gun is the loaded gun is sitting on the table. Like eventually they're going to want to pick it back up again because they do want to blow Washington up. By the way, can I say if you were writing the afterward to Art of the Deal, um, I mean, wouldn't you say that the Freedom Congress got what they wanted? I mean, they wanted Boehner out. They wanted somebody who was going to do more stuff like they wanted. And that's basically Ryan. So all of their bad behavior that they was to- they were told was so terrible for the party and horrible, like essentially worked out pretty well for them in the end. Although they didn't substantively get the government shrunk. They got no, all but they got the a better personnel chance. moves. Right. But they think they have a better chance of getting that done with with Ryan than they would have had than they would have had under Bain. Well, we just don't know. We don't it, know. It, it all comes down to whenever March totally. 2017 and who's president and how strong the Republican House majority is. Absolutely. I mean, if it's yeah. a Republican president in 2017, God knows what terrible things are going to happen. If there's a Democratic president, God knows, God what, knows terrible, what terrible things, things are going to happen. happen. <laughs> uh One last question on this. So Paul Ryan had to come out and say this was a terrible process. This was a terrible way to get a deal. It's backrooms, blah, blah, blah. And Republicans had to condemn the terrible process. Was this actually a terrible process? Isn't this a great process? Isn't this how government Well, you love backroom deals and want all the politicos. Hopefully they smoke some cigars for you in their backrooms. I have no idea. John Boehner smokes. So he was definitely smoking. Does Harry Reid smoke? I don't think so. He probably doesn't. Mitch I love the anecdote. Me. No way. I love the story Ryan this smokes, week so. that John Boehner walked out of Harry Reid's office crying. Like you would think those two would not have some emotional bond, but apparently, of course, they do. Well, They've been in Washington yeah, forever they're together. They're so Pauls. They're Pauls. They're both Pauls right. through and through. But is is this a bad process? Yeah, it is a bad process because the budget is the it's the way we write down in numbers and words what our priorities are, what we care about. As opposed to pictures? Yeah, right, exactly. We're going to draw it. It's our it's finger be painting. We should have our budget in like dance finger budget. painting. It'll be a CrossFit workout in the Ryan. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's like the poetry slam of our nation's uh, priorities. But it's the way we write down what our priorities are, and we have a big debate through the process about what those priorities are and are our commitments to the uh, to the previous generation's outstretching our uh, what we need to invest for the future you know are we it's where the inequality conversation and how that gets fixed should in a functioning system be going on at a constant process on a constant level so 
if the place was functional, which Congress hasn't been for the last many years, you would have all these committee meetings. And then at the committee meetings, you would have people call, come in and you'd have testimony about what's the benefit of having a, an apprenticeship program for people who are doing retraining or having a voucher so they can go out and do retraining. And is it better to have tax credits to do that or make it a deduction? All that stuff would be adjudicated in a you know relatively reason-based system, as opposed to what happens now. And you mentioned the the chicanery in the in the budget. What they basically do is, oh crap, we got to find some money. Let's just f- grab it from somewhere. They're they're getting money from selling Spectrum. They've been selling yeah. Spectrum since I was covering the budget for the first yeah. time in 1994. Yeah. I mean, ha- there shouldn't be any more Spectrum to sell. They keep it's, finding new bits of Spectrum. It is literally the change in yeah. the couch for federal budgeting. Yeah. It is amazing that they can still find it. And that's not intelligent. That's just basically like, okay, we've got some gimmicks we can throw together to get our $80 billion over two years. Yeah, and they sell, they're selling oil from the Strategic Petroleum right. Reserve. It's just, That's it's, another old standby. <laughs> and then they're changing how they account do the accounting for asset forfeiture or something like that. I didn't f- read deep, deep into that, so I don't actually know what they're doing. But it's all At school, you used nonsense. to be able to get, um, in college, you used to be able to get a $100 loan on the honor system for a month. And you, so you get the 100 bucks, and then, you know, when you got your allowance again or you got your job or whatever – you could pay it back. But like when you had to go get the $100 loan, you knew you were basically in really bad shape. Uh-huh. But, you know, there were those months where you're like, okay. What would you pay it back? Do you have to pay you it back? You pay back in a month. But 100 or 105? 100, no, no interest, yeah. No, it was an interest-free loan. Um, Is this a I UVA? forget what it was called, yeah. I forget what it was called. Who's making the loan? At school, I guess, yeah. I can't remember. How often did you do it? Uh, half a dozen times over the course of... I wonder if it's still 100 or something. I wonder if it still exists. I don't, know that it, I don't know that it still exists. Um, what if like you don't pay it back? It's like a payday loan with no consequences. Well, if you don't pay, pay I think uh, my recollection is if you don't pay it back, it's a breach of the honor system, which is like... You know, and then you can get kicked out? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, oh, there were consequences. Oh, so it's not that you, Just not, not high that. interest rates. Yeah, no, the high interest rate was the penalty of... Uh, right, we throw you out of school for a $100 debt. That's great. That's yeah. a real good... Yeah. I'd rather have my leg broken. Yeah. Thank you. But it's like, that's what's in this budget. You know, it's like, well, we can make up the fart shortfall by, you know, going across campus and waiting in line and signing that form. Let's hear from our next sponsor, which is bonobos.com. Every guy wants to look his best, but few want to put in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe. So a lot of you commented that I, if I have chain grease on my pants, it's because I'm doing it wrong. And that's probably true. But in fact, is I do have chain grease on my pants. Getting I also on like, and off your I, bike? On and off my bike, and I just don't have a chain you, guard on it. So that's what's... But do you roll your pants leg up no, and then forget to take it back down? I don't. I just oh. don't. No. You got to perfect that look. I know. It's But that's... Beca- that's Or I could just become a Bonobos.com customer because Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit because but they have clothes... Is what? the grease on your pants because it doesn't fit or because... It's no, but a, it's like, but you know, but the pants get, I ruin clothes really quickly, so I need to replace them. Oh, I understand. Oh, got it now. It's not, I mean, it's, so the, if you look at these pants, they have, they also have stained every, I'm just not a neat, neat person, but what about I like j- nice clothes. What about jodhpurs? Would those be, I feel like jodhpurs <laughs> would be the kind of thing you could bicycle on without fear of besmirching your jodhpurs with grease. Jodhpurs would help because they don't get caught in the chain. Okay. I have a lot of pants that are ripped at the very bottom, too. Well, we'll get to that. I'm seeing what kind of things that Bonobo sells, and we'll see if jodhpurs is concluded. It's easy to browse online through top-quality styles from your home. There's free and easy shipping and returns of your jodhpurs. And Bonobo's offers a full line of stylish men's clothing, all meticulously crafted for a better fit. 
shirts for the office or the weekend, suits that fit like they've been tailored just for you, jackets and outerwear, which might include jodhpurs. Jodhpurs are not really outerwear. Ties, belts, and shoes, even golf clothes and pants. Jodhpurs would fall in the pants category. We'll check. We're going to investigate. You're going to look stylish. You're going to feel comfortable. And you can pick your perfect fit from slim, standard, or tall. And for a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order when you go to bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. You know, the benefit of bicycling with Jodhpurs, too, is that Jodhpurs basically look like you've had two airbags explode on your thighs. So if you wiped out... They would protect you. Are Jodhpurs the ones that are tight on the bottom and then they puff out? They're tight below they like the knee uh, and then they balloon at the thighs as uh, uh, um, they like the Druze militia used to wear what looked like Jodhpurs sort of, huh. I think. I might be totally wrong about that. But I, I have remember shapely the... calves that would show off my shapely calves. Mm-hmm. They would. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Huh. Uh, that's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash Gabfest to discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better fitting wardrobe can make for all Druze and others. Ben Fields, a school security officer in Columbia, South Carolina at Spring Valley High School, was fired on Wednesday several days after a video surfaced showing Fields pulling and throwing a black female high school student across a classroom, then arresting her. The teacher, this, the girl had been in a showdown with the teacher over a cell phone, over using her cell phone. Uh, the conflict had escalated. The teacher had called for backup, which I guess means bringing in a cop in this school district, and the matter escalated. Why, Emily, did this encounter capture so much attention? Oh, it's incredibly violent and disturbing to watch an adult armed police officer flip over a desk, throw a girl onto her head, and then drag her. And it connects up with a lot of data about how black students from the age of preschool on are punished more heavily than white students for similar infractions. And that's a really disturbing part of our education system right now. It's the same issues we've seen in the criminal justice system with police abuses transferred onto kids in school. This notion that you bring in the possibility of penalties for small infractions. It's like a broken windows theory of school. And then you end up with a lot of kids who are caught in the gears. And it turns out, lo and behold, that they're disproportionately black kids. And they're the ones with a record of suspension and the sort of reputation for being unruly. And that's all really dismaying because those records get linked up to other worse outcomes later in life. It's not like a sort of one harmless moment that passes for a kid. It really affects what happens to them later. Is Broken Windows... Are you were you linking those two? Because it feels like they're separate. One is just abuse of power and escalating a situation that shouldn't have been escalated. Another was with broken whisky, <laughs> broken whiskers, broken windows or stop and frisk is like a systemic police regimen that adds stress and pressure to that community. Well, I th- actually, I don't Here's- think broken windows and stop and frisk are the same at all. Broken windows is a pro- stop and frisk. I would separate. Yeah, broken broken windows is different than stop and frisk. Broken windows is you see a broken window, you see a turnstile jumping, and you deal with it as opposed to letting it go. Because stop and frisk is because that causes a surveillance. Yeah, 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 no. But I thought this is much more like broken windows, which is that if you allow, if you allow the little bits of chaos and and unruliness to enter classrooms, the classrooms get out of control, and therefore, if you stop that stuff early and hard, then. 
Well, and yeah. hard is the diff- is the is I guess where I was getting yeah, confused. Yeah, the method because, of stopping it because presumably you could you could stop it in a non or in a, in, in a way that isn't so violent, and it might still be useful. The other argument is even if you that that it isn't useful at all, that there's a harassment involved. That's where these two things are slightly different. And that's why stop and frisk. I thought I mean, I thought stop and frisk was also supposed to stop bigger crimes by being more attentive at kind of a smaller level. You stop the bigger stuff from happening. Well, the idea of stop and frisk is that everybody feels like they're being surveyed. And so no, 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 but the police the police rationale for it. No, no, but I'm saying the police, what the police are doing with stop and frisk is like, if we stop a higher percentage of people, yeah, most of the people we stop won't have been doing anything wrong, but other people in the neighborhood will see that the chances of their being caught go up. That's the rationale. So let's go back to this question of school. I mean, there are lots of reasons to think that it's a good idea to have a really orderly, calm classroom environment and that kids acting out in a classroom is a problem. The question then becomes, what do you do about it? So there are some really good alternatives that have to do with fostering relationships between kids and adults in schools and rewarding kids for good behavior as opposed to sending them to the office and suspending them for bad behavior. And there's like a whole school of thought. The acronym is PBIS. It's the P and the B are positive behavior. And it's been pretty effective in a lot of schools that have used it. It has like good research backup as a method. The whole point of that method is, like I was saying, to bring down office referrals and suspensions. This, um, what we were got this window in um, with a disturbing video is a different method. It's let's have more cops in schools, school resource officers. They're going to be a kind of separate outside arm of authority in the schools, and they're going to help impose discipline. And we don't know very much about how that works. Like, are there ways to use the police in schools that actually really make schools better and safer and give the kids another um, more kind of benevolent authority presence in their life? I have been in schools. I've done reporting in schools where it seems like the police actually did play that role. But what we do know is when you have school resources officers in schools, their kids are more likely to get arrested. And that is a big problem. Then we're just creating another schools to prison pipeline and a way in which the good, reasonable goal of this kind of orderly, calm classroom translates into very punitive consequences for the kids who don't live up to that ideal on their own. The, the part of this, which is so I found so disturbing because I I sense it in myself and I like I I see the kind of racism that I have over this in myself. And I, that's what it freaks me out is is the fact that black students' misbehavior is perceived as being pathological, characterological, more dangerous, and therefore subject to more punitive punishment uh, and more frequent punishment than white students' behavior of the same notion. And what's more, the freaky part is that the darker your skin, if you're a black girl, the more likely you are to to be more severely punished. And that leaves you with like a... That's it's a really and, and is the answer. Well, it makes to that, you feel like we're answer. still living in like the Jim Crow yeah. era or even the 19th century. It's really, really alarming. But is the answer to it that it should become totally robot? The punishment is totally robotic. No matter what anyone does, the punishment is absolutely. It's like it's like a sentencing. Well, that's never going to work. Or is it that you? Yeah. So it's so. What is it? How how do you how do you get rid of that huge amount of racial bias that seems built into the system? 
and how I do you mean, get I people to see black? Things. You how do you get to people to see black girls and black girls' behavior as being the same as white girls or Hispanic girls or Asian girls? I mean, like how how, how does that happen? Well, I guess I'd say two things, and black boys are important to the conversation too, obviously. One is that you bring down suspension rates for everyone and you look for school climate management systems like the one I outlined before in which the explicit goal is fewer suspensions and office referrals. Because if you think about it, it's kind of a crazy idea. The kids who the most often need to be in school, the kids who can least afford to miss the academic instruction time are the ones we take out of the classroom. That's just that's not an answer. So that's the sort of like what's good for everyone answer. And then the second answer, I think, is when you see disproportionate rates of punishment for black people at every step of the system, then you have to have an inner check that kind of pushes in the opposite direction. So we have to have training for teachers and administrators as an addition to the police on implicit bias and a way of making sure that if you're imposing a punishment on someone African-American, you've really thought through whether you're being fair. I mean, that sounds like such an individualized solution, but I think we just have to be aware that unless we have explicit checks in place, it's not it's there is going to be this bias. In this case, it wasn't obviously that she was not guilty of disrupting class. It was the it was the the overshooting was in the response, the Oh, yeah. I mean, the escalation sounds like it was. I mean, look, you can see on the that's just not. Yes, she wouldn't give up her phone. She was having a verbal confrontation with the teacher over giving up her phone and with the school resource officer. I mean, if that was your daughter, what could she possibly be saying at what volume that could justify her being turned? That's like if that was my kid. I mean, uh, nothing. But on the other hand, if that was your kid, if that was your kid, like what the fuck is wrong with your kid that. The, you know, that she she's using her phone in classroom when she shouldn't. And her teacher, you know, is temporary. Yeah, I mean, sure. It, it, the, I mean, the look, student, the student did not acquit herself well. Yes. Ag- agreed. But when you see that kind of disproportionate punishment, it starts to rub the, the, it, the degree to which you have to then apologize and take responsibility for the initial offense. Like, yes, sure. You want your kid to behave well. And I'm sure she didn't behave in the way that I would want my kid to behave. But what matters so much more is that you can't flip a kid on her head like that. That's terrifying. Right. Yeah. Well, nobody's saying, I guess. So how do you fix it? I mean, in other words, it's not it's also it's it's not also not just like sensitivity training because you want the you want basically the girl to not be on the phone in the middle of class in the first place. Yeah, but if you maybe if you have a school and a class, look, I don't know anything about this school and classroom, so I don't want to be sitting in judgment of it. But in schools in which kids and teachers are that the whole dynamic of the school is about fostering trust between them. And you have a way of rewarding kids for doing good, small, good things instead of having the whole interaction that's personal with a teacher be about dinging you for getting something wrong. Then you have fewer problems like that. You're never going to eliminate them entirely. They're always going to be kids who act out, but you reduce them. Right. And another point to make along that line, Emily, is that, is that one of the weird effects of spe- you spend all this money on can- on cop security, you you make that a part of your budget, which of course takes away resources that you would otherwise spend on things that, that might well improve the climate in the school or get you better teachers or whatever it is. So it's it's a re- it's also you've you've misallocated resources in a way that is going to make your school less good when you spend it on cops. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, before we go to cocktail chatter, we have a third sponsor this week, which is SAP. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile. 
to develop new streams of revenue, to predict the future, and to reimagine the way they do business. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash sapHANA, sap.com slash sapHANA to learn more. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're drinking a cocktail made of the blood of patriots under the tree that you've watered with that blood, John Dickerson, what will you be chattering about? So um, Virginia, West Virginia, has the highest overdose rate in the country. It's um, 34 drug overdose overdose deaths per 100,000 in 2011 to 2013. That's up from 22 deaths per 100,000 in 2007, 2009. I think this is twice. That's a lot. Yeah, it's twice the national average of drug overdose deaths. So President Obama went to— Yeah, opiate, basically. The same opiate epidemic that is— well, ravaging lots of towns, places in New, New Hampshire, Iowa. I mean, it's all across the country, Indiana. Yes. Um, so last week, President Obama went to West Virginia to announce a new federal program aimed at trying to get a handle on this opiate ep- epidemic, which is wor- the worst in West Virginia, but other places. So he gave the speech, and a, a, a fellow who was watching was so moved by the speech that he called 911 and said he had a cooler full of drugs and he wanted to turn them over. And the cooler included pot, 19 grams of ecstasy, and more than 150 painkillers. And he told the authorities that he'd been watching Obama's announcement and hoped to become sober for his mother. And so turned himself in. So the power of the bully pulpit may be totally wizened in this age, but not for one changing one life, which is pretty pretty cool. Emily, what is your... uh Blood, blood cocktail, Patriot blood cocktail. I have been um, quelling over the last few weeks over the publication of a book of poetry. It's called Bastards of the Reagan Era, and it's by one of my students. His his name is Reginald Dwayne Betts. Um, he goes by Dwayne, and I shouldn't really claim him. He was in my writing course last year, but I, as everyone should know, know absolutely nothing about poetry. I had zero useful or any other kind of input on this book and barely even know how to read it. However, (laughs) it's wonderful. I finally got a copy and have been enjoying it. It's gotten some really excellent reviews and it's exciting to have one student be acclaimed in this particular way. And Dwayne is an amazing, terrific guy, just a really fun guy to talk to. But he's also someone with the kind of history that makes you want success for him. He, when he was 16, um, made a big mistake and committed a carjacking and was sentenced as an adult and served eight years in prison. So he then got himself together in prison by reading a lot of poetry and a lot of uh, well-known black authors and went to community college. And I think it's, yeah, he must be a third-year student who's about to graduate from law school in the spring. Anyway, exciting. Bastards of the Reagan era. If you like poetry or you're interested in these issues, totally worth picking up. Awesome. Uh, my chatter is actually a story I, I was telling when John Dickerson and I went on our, are on our date, and John liked it, so I thought I would tell this story. It, it's actually a story I told at an Atlas Obscura event that we did on Saturday night at Greenwood Cemetery. Greenwood Cemetery is this incredible cemetery in Brooklyn. If you're in Brooklyn you haven't been to Greenwood Cemetery, my God, make a date. Go there now. It's just the most astonishing public space I've ever seen, practically. It's beautiful. Um, but, but just to be clear, don't make a date to be interred there. Don't be interred there, not before your time. There are lots of mausoleums you could buy or rent, build. 
so we did this event at, at Greenwood on, on Saturday night, and, and um, some of us told stories of individuals who were buried at Greenwood. And I was assigned to tell the story of Doha Mi, which is an amazing story. So Doha Mi is a, was in 1843, she came to New York. She was an 18-year-old Sac Indian. She was the daughter of the chief of the Sac Indians, which were a tribe in Kansas. And they had come east, her father had come east to negotiate with the U.S. government. He was in New York with other tribal leaders. And along the way, Dohami met a, a Cow Kiki, who was a young Iowa, who was also coming to New York to negotiate. And she and Cow Kiki fell in love and were married. And when the Indians were in New York in 1843, they were a huge sensation. They were a subject of enormous fascination um, in this big city. People didn't know Indians. They didn't know what the Plains Indians were like at that point. And P.T. Barnum, who saw opportunity everywhere, hired Dohummi and Kaukiki to perform at his American Museum downtown on Broadway. And they were they were the the cat's pajamas. They were the town. They were the, the town was fascinated with them. They were invited out to parties. They everyone wanted to see them. But uh, they were also Dohummi was exposed to, of course, pathogens that she wouldn't have met on the plains. And she died almost uh, instantly. Uh, she died five weeks after after her marriage and, and just a few weeks after being in New York. And she was buried. Uh, she, they held a ceremony. She died at the museum, in fact. And, and then, but then she was buried at Greenwood, uh, which is a, you know, in itself is an amazing story, but there's an incredible coda to it, which is in 2005, the monument to Doha Mi was deteriorating. The, the marble was, was peeling and, and falling and being been damaged by the rain and so forth. And so they wanted to restore it. And Greenwood Cemetery tried to raise a fund. They, they asked the public to make donations and they only raised $400 of the $5,000 they needed. And then uh, a man named Isaac Feliciano stepped up and, and donated the $4,500 that was needed to, to complete the, the monument restoration. And why had he done this? Isaac Feliciano was a Greenwood groundskeeper and he'd worked in the cemetery for 10 years, taking care of the gravestones and the mausoleums. And in 2001, his wife, his, his 30-year-old wife, Rosa, mother of their two young daughters, had been on the 96th floor of Tower One of the World Trade Center and had been killed in the World Trade Center. And in 2005, when I think the, the chance to restore this monument came up, he, he chose it. And he hasn't really talked about it, but the, the, cure, the uh, president of Greenwood said it was because he saw in Doha Mi another young woman who had a young wife who had died too young and too suddenly in New York. And it had, it had made him connect with his own wife. So I thought an incredible story about 19th century America and 21st century America and, and uh, two tragedies. So You know how much it costs for a single mausoleum at the uh, Greenwood Cemetery? No. How much would you guess, Emily, it would count a single today? Ma- mausoleum? I have mausoleum no today. idea. It's currently sold for immediate use only. A single mausoleum is $23,000 to $31,000. A single grave... Up to three burials, $15,000. I would only get buried once. I think that's for stacking. Yeah. Been to, been to some stacked be funerals. Top, top or recently. bottom of that yeah. one. I think you want to be at the top. Yeah, yeah right, because you would be <laughs> the least. It all depends what la- you think is going to happen <laughs> next. If you're a rational being and you think nothing is going to happen, it really doesn't matter. Clay. Our intern is Tarek Barrett. show is produced by Jason DeLeon. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, where I just tweeted I just tweeted a photo of Emily in her box to that 
And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest in iTunes. And please come to our Superfest November 16th in New York. Slate.com slash Superfest NYC. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, and David Plotz, we'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, host of Unorthodox, a podcast by Jews for you, whoever you are. This week, we're joined by a guest Jew, novelist Wayne Hoffman, who writes very, very dirty gay books. And our Gentile of the Week, Elvis Harvey, is a dog trainer on the Upper West Side of New York. We'll be talking dogs, Jews, and all sorts of things with him. And am I correct in saying that Jews are probably among the most complicated of your clients? No. No? No. Actually, not at all. Who is? Catholics. Really? Yes. Find Unorthodox on iTunes or at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.